What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What is crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you unfortunately without my co-host Adam Frommel this time, who needed to cancel last minute again because he had the second dose of the COVID shot. So he won't be joining us today, which means that I have to go through an NBA mailbag solo, but that's still fun. Uh, if you are listening in locker rooms, I know people tend to not join rooms when there's only one host. Feel free to speak, ask questions in the chat. Do have a bunch of questions teed up. Also have Nets Bucks on in the background if you have any questions about that. Uh, won't talk necessarily scores. You know, we're not going to play by play this because it'll be super dated by the time that it, you know, airs. However, we do have a ton of questions, so uh, let's not mince words. Let's get right into it. Uh, going to start with a question from Brendan McKay nine at Brendan McKay nine. Is Rudy Gobert having an historically good defensive season or just pretty good? I feel like it's really difficult to measure historical defensive impacts just because we don't have the the access to the stats, or and I don't even know if you could adequately quantify defense anyway, even if we had all, you know, if everyone had access to all these stats that are behind, you know, their proprietary stats, basically. So that gets difficult to look at it. I do think he is the defensive player of the year still. Even as I've thought the Jazz has struggled over the past month or so, they're still like first in defense over the past month or something or second. Just wild at how much of an impact he can have. Two things if you do want to look at numbers. Um, they have the rim defensive impact data that goes back as far as 2013-2014. Rudy Gobert this season is defending 7.9 attempts at the rim per game, holding opponents to a 50.1% clip there. If you use that sample size between 2013 and now, only one other player has done the same, whereas he's averaging as many shot contests at the rim as Rudy Gobert and then holding opponents to 50.1 shooting or lower. It's actually this year's Miles Turner, and then Rudy Gobert himself did it last year, and that's just it. Those are the only ones in that uh, eight-year sample size that we're working with here. I do think it speaks to how much of an impact he's definitely having and also just how more common it is or maybe it's getting a little bit more common we have these higher volume room protectors and teams are really going to funnel guys towards them and right now i would argue that rudy gobert and miles turner are just the two guys that are going to do that also just if you want numbers um he is on pace to have a block percentage comfortably above seven while logging more than two thousand minutes that has only been done by 12 players in nba history thus far Sean Bradley, Mark Eaton, Marcus Camby, Dikembe Mutombo, Theo Ratliff, Hassan Whiteside, Manu Bowl, Serge Ibaka, Alonzo Mourning, David Robinson, Tree Rollins, and then Miles Turner. Not like a who's who of all these necessarily elite defenders, but some some pretty good company. The fact that his block rate is so high, when that's not even necessarily the thing that he's best at, it's deterrence more so than even just... I mean, 
it's probably equitable. I shouldn't put it that way. But he just dissuades people from trying to do anything at the rim, and that's how he. That's where his value lies. Also, his value lies in just the sheer volume that the Jazz can direct so many ball handlers his way. Let's keep this rolling. We have a bunch of questions about the Nuggets, most of which are about Nikola Jokic, who I might have Jokic fatigue on this podcast, even though he's one of my favorite basketball players to watch at the moment. Let's start with the bigger picture one, and then we'll loop all the Nikola Jokic ones together. Um, At 1933 was a bad year. That is Fred asks, how legitimate will the Nuggets be without Jamal Murray in the playoffs? That's a really fair question. Um, I think that they are still going to... They've proven they're already a great regular season team still. They're 9-1 since Jamal Murray Torres left ACL. I am of the mind that the playoffs are going to be a different animal, and you don't have someone who can replace all of Murray's shot-making from scratch creation and then table-setting for others, and then also just the two-man game with Jokic. I don't know that there's anyone else on the roster who's going to be able to replicate that. It sucks for them that they're also dealing with injury Will Barton at the moment. You'd like more of a sample size with as many of these other main guys as possible without Murray. Michael Porter Jr., though, is making another leap having after made like two or three of them, it feels like, right before our eyes. In the 10 games since Murray went down, he's averaging 25.6 points, shooting 62.7% on twos, 51.3% on threes. Just absolutely ridiculous. Getting to the line slightly more, which I think is good, still at only three attempts per game, but that's up from 2.5. And so if he can just get to the line more, if you're going to have the ball in his hands more, that will help you a little bit too. I do think if you want to still register as that foremost title contender in the West, where you don't want to be considered the least likely of the five main contenders in the conference to to come out and get a title, you're going to need more of Michael Porter Jr. self-creation. Uh, 20.4% of his field goals made were going unassisted before Murray's injury. That's ticked up to 24.2%. Um, in the past 10 games that's you know it's noticeable it's not insubstantial but when things bog down in the playoffs in crunch time one possession game can you go to him is he going to be able to generate a shot from scratch and hit them in those situations I think he could I don't know if that'll necessarily happen this year but he absolutely is the player prototype to do that what I will point out though is Nikola Jokic has been one of the clutches players in basketball this year in the final two minutes of one possession games, DeMar DeRozan is the only player who has made more shots in those situations, which is you know, pretty flippin' amazing when you really think about it. Jokic is also getting to the line a ton in those situations. He's uh, tied for sixth place in total three free throw attempts during those clutch situations. Again, that's these are high leverage moments. I'm, I'm even narrowing the crunch time criteria, just one possession in the final two minutes. And so to have someone who can get to the line who's not just taking jumpers or posting up, like he's putting the ball on the floor. And that was a thing before Murray's injury. More of a thing now after Murray's injury, of course. So I'm not counting out the Nuggets anymore. I was going to put them in the bottom five of those five teams. I think they're going to wind up being better. I mean, this might have a lot to do with matchups too. I think they might need to be higher than that. But as of right now, I wouldn't be prepared to put them in front of any of the other teams, if that makes any sense. What I will say is that they're going to be more threatening than just this. If you thought they were going to be a first-round stepping stone, if they have to face the Lakers in that 3-6 matchup, or if it ends up, you know, they're in fourth and they're facing the Mavericks, who are in fifth right now, they're not. This is not. That's not happening. If they face the Mavericks in round one, I would pick them to beat the Mavericks. If they face the Clippers, I don't know. 
they face the Lakers. I'm probably picking the Lakers just because of LeBron. Still, to lose a player of Murray's caliber, especially on offense, even though he's made some defensive improvement, and still be in that discussion is absolutely massive. So let's get to these questions about Nikola Jokic, uh, a couple of which I I laughed at. Uh, Dumb Zach at Michael Skarn 770S. Who do we want to pretend is the MVP over Jokic this week? Kevin Porter? Pretty sure he's referencing the CP3 talk. That's sort of been drummed up of late. I do find it funny that there's this, and then Steph's been thrown in there, that there are these, you know, everyone's constantly searching for that next narrative, that next, next MVP type candidate. I don't know that we're going to be able to throw anyone in there. Uh, the Celtics are getting kind of sort of frisky. Like, is Jason Tatum, after dropping 60, going to be thrown in there? Uh, saying that he needs to be top in the top five for consideration. That seems to be, you know, I don't know that it's been, oh, Stephen Curry needs to win over Jokic. Chris Paul needs to win over Jokic. Although some people are making that argument because the Suns have the best record in basketball. Uh, or the second best record in basketball. I forgot Utah was uh, had a half a game on them at the moment. I get it, why we want to throw different names into the top five. I think we've exhausted the list, though, of new names that could come in. Julius Randle was even getting his flowers for a while. So, is, you know, do the Hornets go on a run with LaMelo Ball back? Is he going to be thrown in there for some reason? Have not seen a push to get any Jazz players in there. And I think that Rudy Gobert, there's only a five-man ballot. I'll go 10 deep, and he will make the top 10 for me. But it's interesting that the Jazz, they have the best record in basketball. Uh, they, they've struggled over the past relative to them. They're 10 and seven in the last month or since April 1st. That's not great for them, but that's still above 500. They have the best record in basketball. There hasn't been a push to include Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell in that discussion. Maybe that heats up at some point. Donovan Mitchell has not returned yet from that sprained ankle though. Rudy Gobert will be the guy that I'll identify. The sun stuff is interesting. Uh, we do have a question about Devin book. So maybe I'll just, I'll save any sun stock for that. But if I had to guess their, uh, Michael, I would probably say that we're gonna. It's gonna be like a Tatum or maybe a Butler. Do the Heat go on some sort of run? They've been wildly disappointing. He's been quietly just super good this year. Uh, next question comes from Jordan Scott at Jordan fifty three. How are people still not understanding how historic this season from Jokic is? I would counter. Are they not understanding? It seems to be pretty commonplace to say that he's just having one of the most offensively efficient seasons in history. I will say when you do look at his splits from the the floor, over 60% on twos, over 40% on threes, there's only ever been one player to average 20 or more points while having that efficiency as the benchmark. 60% inside the arc, 40% beyond it. That would be 2012-2013 LeBron James, which is the season that I would probably say, for me personally, I had the most fun watching James, and I think that was the best season of his career. So that's certainly saying something. You look at what he's just able to do, though, as a passer. Um, I do like using... Uh, it's it's behind a paywall from Ben Taylor over at Backpicks. Um, I like box creation as a passing metric. It's an estimate of open shots created for teammates per 100 possessions. Uh, Nikola Jokic ranks near the top of that. And so you have one of the most valuable passers in basketball, also scoring a shit ton and doing so efficiently, shooting better than 53% on two-point jumpers, hitting almost 50% of those wild fadeaways inside the arc. He was at, this is a couple of days old, so it could have gone up, it could have gone down. He was at 47.8% on fadeaways the last time I checked. 
if it is being overlooked, it's kind of wild to me that anyone could deny what he's doing right now. Just looking at his box score numbers, you could tell that he's having a historical season. So, yeah, I, I don't – if they are overlooking it, I don't think people are. Maybe Denver fans feel the national media is, but I don't think people are overlooking it. We have another and our final Nikola Jokic question comes from – how did I lose it here? Uh, oh, which numbers does Jokic lead or is in second this season? That comes from Eduardo at edu 17 Oliveira. So I took this a different direction. I don't want to look at just points per game and rebounds and assists. He's going to rank just super high in all those metrics. So I wanted to just look at more of my go-to kitchen sink ones, which the five that I've been leaning on this year have been estimated plus minus, total points added, which is done by NBA math, as you guys may know by now at this point. Um, Also been living by uh, value over replacement players, one that I like to look at for for single season and then of course we have ESPN's plus minus and then real adjusted plus minus from NBA shot charts Uh, if you look at those five he is not surprisingly just ranks incredibly highly on on all of them he leads in three of them which is you know there is some variance in advanced kitchen sink metrics so that is impressive to me he leads in estimated plus minus total points added and vorp he has broken the the total points added metric when you just look at those graphs that come out on nba math at nba underscore math for anyone who's listening uh, there his his name is just by or his face since the, we use icons is just far and away above and beyond every one else on on those lists it's absolutely absurd when you're looking at espn's real plus minus he ranks eighth I think that is his most fa- least favorable positioning on this. Um, but for real adjusted plus minus, RA, RAPM, again, this one comes from NBA shot charts, and they do allow you to uh, adjust for luck, which is interesting when you're doing it for a single season. He is 51st overall, so that was actually the least favorable one. I do remember looking at that. When you adjust for luck, though, he's fifth. And so you know, take that for what it is. But he is just – he's the – as someone who had Embiid over him before Embiid's bone bruise and then considered Giannis over him for a little while after that point that part might be sheepish I'm sheepish I might have been overthinking it I do think Embiid had a legitimate case before his injury I will stand by that which is why I would put him second on my ballot right now behind Jokic we're at the point though where he has run away with the award what just seemed like an MVP free-for-all fracas would like battle royale it's turned into a runaway result and I think what's not being talked about enough and it's odd because people are talking about how he's in the best shape of his life. He is in the best shape of his life. He's played in every single game after going to the Western Conference Finals and then having the shortest offseason in sports history. Not as short as the Heat or Lakers who went to the Finals, but we're talking then about you know two or three teams that had shorter offseasons than the Nuggets this year by that measure. That is, that is bonkers. Every single game and in the best shape of his life. That's just a testament to the type of season he's having as much as his actual production that the Nuggets have climbed up the standings. That obviously matters too. They're contending for a home court advantage spot. And he has the the storyline boost with Jamal Murray's injury, keeping them afloat without him. That's that's huge. So I would be, he was a runaway result already. I, I'm going to be shocked to see, I don't know that he'll be unanimous, uh, the second unanimous MVP in league history, but he's going to be damn near close would be my guess. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. We're going to move off some Nuggets talk. Sorry to disappoint everybody. This question was so unbelievably tough, and I'm happy that you know the it wasn't asked about the entire All-NBA rosters because centers are easy. The three centers are going to be Gobert, Embiid, and Jokic. That's just a, a given. The, the, but the guards are a hellscape of talent, is how I put it on Twitter. Uh, but JDub9911 uh, asked six All-NBA forwards and then your toughest cut. So my first team has Giannis. That's a given. LeBron is going to be my other first team member. I don't really care that he missed 20 games. He's playing at such a high level. Some people might have Kawhi here. That's fine, too. Kawhi's missed a ton of time as well. But LeBron's influence over the offense, it beats out what Kawhi's done for me this season. And he's, again, Kawhi's been great on offense, and he has his defense, even though there's sort of you know a switch with him the past few years. If you want to flip flop those two, that's fine. After those three, it gets incredibly interesting. I didn't think I'd be here at this point. I, I'm full disclosure, and this is just someone who has watched a lot of this guy. Uh, Julius Randle is my other second team forward right now. He's been, you know, when you're looking at just um, bigs, he's seventh, and this includes centers, but he's eighth, excuse me, in value over replacement player, leads the Knicks in scoring and assists, playing a ton of minutes, held up over this truncated schedule. The Knicks did have a longer offseason than. A bunch of teams still that's impressive and I think his availability in this case matters and the Knicks have obliterated expectations more than every other team credit Tom Thibodeau for that as much as you need to especially on defense Randall's running the Knicks offense and while it's not this great offense he's hitting step back threes throwing these wild last minute passes I don't maybe some people are going to have one of the other two names that I'll or three technically that I'll mention here that's fine I think Julius Randall has become all NBA consensus now. Noah, Noah, you're sitting here alone with me. I appreciate it. Everyone on locker room hates the the one host rooms. Uh, shame on Adam for getting his second COVID shot, right, guys? Uh, but Noah Odage sent the gift of Randall flexing. I think he's all NBA consensus. I would be shocked at this point if he doesn't make one of the three teams. My third team is Jimmy Butler, who's missed time, and I, that's probably why I haven't bumped him up above Julius Randle. He'd be the player I'd most likely to do it. Just a monster on defense, and we're probably not, and it's it's not even probably. I need to stop hedging here. We're not talking enough about the the season that he's having. Miami's offense is, I would say, cataclysmic. Cataclysmic. Okay. It's, it's a catastrophe. Let me stop trying to use big SAT words that I can't pronounce while I'm trying to stare at three different screens at once. It's bad, but he's having basically a career year on offense. 21.6 points per game. Uh, that's the third highest of his career. Career high 7.2 assists per game. Shooting 53.7% on twos, which is incredibly impressive because people know he's not shooting threes this year. Only two attempts per game, hitting them at a 20.7% clip. Is he going to shoot like 80% in the playoffs again or whatever it was last year? That's, that's a possibility. And then he leaves the league in steals, but he's also just mind-meltingly competitive on the defensive end as well the last spot was the toughest I think the five guys I named you can put them in whatever order you want I think Giannis is the the guy that you look at and say okay well he has to be on the first team everyone else can be fudged around a little bit Um, I think you could say LeBron and then Kawhi they have to be either first or second but 
this was just the spot, that second, third team spot that was most malleable for me. And I went with Jason Tatum. He's been really good for the Celtics this year, even though they've missed by preseason expectations. I don't think that's on him. It's what it comes down to is you have Jason Tatum, you have Jalen Brown. Who's your third best player on any given night? You're supposed to be able to answer that with Kemba, maybe sometimes Marcus Smart. You haven't been able to answer that this season. And Kemba's missed some time recently again, been up and down, hasn't really been able to put together any real momentum though, was shooting under 32% on three and over his past 12 games before his most recent injury. It's it's an issue. And you have now on just in the in the what should be the meat and potatoes or even just the the back end of the rotation, you're relying on guys that maybe you wouldn't in an ideal season. You know, Peyton Pritchard's been good, but is that someone that you are going to want to play heavy minutes in the playoffs? You have Aaron Naismith, who has picked up his play a bit. Had played some pretty good defense the other night, by the way. I In the game I was watching, I can't remember who they were playing, so I, I apologize for that. I've, I've reached this level of just trying to keep track of lineups and who's available and who's not that I forget matchups and even games I've watched, which probably doesn't bode well for the, the projects that I'm in the middle of working on. I just don't, you know, and maybe Evan Fournier, that experiment clearly has not gone as smoothly as they would have preferred at the at the trade deadline. You still make that deal, by the way, 10 out of 10 times because they picked him up for basically nothing. And I don't know that they're going to, they still have part of the tra- traded player exception left. I don't know who else they were going to get over um, before expired that was better. They still have a higher ceiling than the Celtics. I just don't view what their struggles have been, the uncertainty, that's not on Jason Tatum or or Jalen Brown, really. I guess you can criticize Tatum for not being more of a natural playmaker, even though he's improved a great deal there. He shouldn't, you know who Jason Tatum is, though. That can't be the expectation. He's not supposed to be Nicole Yoke. He's supposed to be Jimmy Butler at this point when you're looking at that passing type jump. He's been clutch for them, getting to the line a lot. And, you know, I narrowed the the crunch time criteria, as I said before. Um, One possession games in the final two minutes, he... He has been to the line a bunch in those situations. He is tied for third place with with Devin Booker there. Uh, He is also shooting not so well from three, three of nine in those minutes, but he is also 12 of of 17 on twos in those minutes. That's wrong. 12 of 23. 12 of 22, excuse me. That's that's huge as as well. Uh, What he brings to you defensively, can be really disruptive. Never, well, I shouldn't say never, but he doesn't always defend the best guy. He can be really, really disruptive off the ball. Good help defender, and he can hold his own on it. The toughest guy to leave off for me was Zion Williamson, and I, I really thought about putting him on. His numbers, they bend your brain. Uh, he is on the season. He is averaging, or he's up to. 27 points on a true shooting of 65.2. Dude gets to the basket more than anyone else we've seen. The the Zion to as as point guard, so to speak, experiment has worked out well for New Orleans. I do think we've seen its limitations where it, it's not working for them as well now, and that's not, that's not on him. You want them to have more options, but between that sort of I don't want to say petering out because it's still working, but between that becoming less of a a novelty. Uh, and then just his defensive struggles, there's still he has a long way to go off the ball. If you think he's fine on the ball this season, that he's even made progress, good, great. But if you watch the Pelicans, and, and part of it just might be how they're defending, and as Zach Lowe pointed out, they've changed parts of their schemes midseason, so that that could be confounding him too. I I give Tatum the slight edge. If you want to put him in, that again, that's not something that I could really quibble over. 
I didn't necessarily feel I needed to give anyone else consideration here, and I'm wondering if that's terrible. Kevin Durant hasn't played enough. That's just a fact. Maybe Paul George. You could certainly consider Paul George having a having a boss year. Uh, play, playoff P has arrived in the regular season, but he's playing good, so I guess that means he's not playoff P, actually. Uh, that's really it, though. Uh, you, you can hit me if you think that I there's any egregious misses here. But I think that's pretty straightforward, that it's going to end up being between those seven guys for the spots, unless you feel strongly that Chris Middleton needs to be there. I don't know. Let's get to another question. This one comes from Anthony Morlachi at Anthony Morlachi. Uh, well, he's actually his, his Twitter name is Tony at Bofa, and then he's at Anthony Morlachi. I'm going to assume the latter is his name. Hornets got back both Malik Monk and LaMelo Ball last night with Hayward returning close to the playoffs. What is their ceiling? That's a, that's an interesting question. I do think a lot of it's going to depend on how the play-in tournament shakes out. I don't know that they're going to... It's mathematically feasible for them to get one of the top six spots. I don't see them passing the Heat and then having to beat out the Celtics. You have to beat out both those teams, basically, to get a spot. Or let's say two of the Hawks, Celtics, and or all three of the Hawks. It's just, yeah, you're not beating two of the Hawks, Celtics, and Heat out, I don't think, at this point in the season. When you get to the play-in tournament, I don't know that there's a team there, if I'm Charlotte and I'm at full strength, that would scare me. I know Washington's been really good, and we have a question on them coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, I just, uh, you know, Indiana on, on paper, yes, and they're, they're getting, they did have the emotional boon that comes with playing the Thunder right now, where they beat them by pl- about one trillion points, give or take a point or two there. Uh, Miami is certainly the team that you would fear in, in the play-in tournament, but there's two spots to get there. So let's just assume that you lose that game if it's 7-8 against Miami. Are you worried about having to beat the Pacers or the Wizards? At this point, it doesn't look like it's going to be the Bulls or the Raptors. I picked the Raptors to get in there, by the way, and then to get into the playoffs. That prediction is aging quite poorly. I'm going to be... The two things I'll be watching is what does their defense sort of look like when LaMelo Ball went into the starting lineup? And this is not a, on him. I'm using this as more of just a a checkpoint for their season. When he went into the the starting lineup for good, they I give credit to James Borrego and just the personnel in general, given how small Charlotte has played this year, that they've been closer to league average than not defensively. But they were 30th in opponent effective field goal percentage. I still think there's potential there because they can force a fair amount of turnovers without, without fouling, which is good. Uh, they were taking care of the defensive glass. They were eighth over that time. It was 21 games before LaMelo's injury once he was insert into the starting lineup for good just what how what are you going with in the playoffs are are you going to need to play have more big man minutes if you're if you're if you're fully healthy uh are you going to consider giving more run to I, I think the three guys you look at as staples even though you do have Malik Monk you do have Devontae Graham is Terry Rozier LaMelo Ball and Gordon Hayward and you flesh out your lineups from there the lineup I would like to see more of it's only played 108 possessions this season is the LaMelo, Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, Miles Bridges, P.J. Washington lineup. They're plus 4.7 points um, per 100 possessions in that sample size. So it's so tiny, but it's encouraging. 127.8 offensive rating in those minutes. They've been a disaster on defense, but I think a lot of your small ball lineups are going to give up a lot there. There have been some P.J. Washington at the five lineups that are surviving, and so is this a situation where you just take out Bridges and move Washington to the five, and then you're going to try and use... You know, Cody Martin or something because I don't think Malik Monk isn't going to help you that that's not the substitution you're making in in this instance but 
this team could throw someone for a whirl. I, I don't think they have a prayer of beating Brooklyn, Philly, in the fir- one of those two teams in the first round since it looks like that's how 1-2 is going to shake out is it's going to be Brooklyn or Philly. But as far as the playing goes, let's let's say that it's just where it lies. Is you're going to have Heat, Hornets, Pacers, Wizards. I might consider picking the Hornets to come out of there. The Pacers would worry me more than the Wizards relative to to Charlotte. Just they their roster seems more there's there's more depth on that roster even if it's not higher end depth because the Wizards could technically have the two best players of those teams when you're looking at Bradley Beal and and Russell Westbrook. Certainly something to consider. But having LaMelo back is huge for Charlotte just for what he can do to sort of delineate the offense, set up guys. We In his first game back, we already saw that crazy full-court pass. So there's he adds more of an, that air of unpredictability to the offense, which I think is good, but then also helps them not just full-court, but even half-court. And there's, you know, you probably want more out of his off-the-dribble jumper than you've seen. He's shooting close to 36%, I think, on pull-up threes this year, and a shot well off the catch you probably just need him to be a stronger finisher more of a threat to score once he gets in the lane but he just creates so much havoc on defense and then i thought basketball news's nikias duncan published a great piece on on his return where if he can get defenders attached at at the hip like he's really going to derail their their directions if you know if, if they're trying to switch on screens he's going to change a ton up for the defense just by doing that and that just gives you someone who can you know, should be the driving force of an offense. Devontae Graham had a great year last year, kind of overstretched in that playmaker's role, still provides the off-the-dribble juice, and that's where the variance is for this team. They do have talent on this, where I, I name those, I view them as the, the three staples, although Miles Bridges might be working his way into that conversation with the way he's been playing. You have those three guys, and then there's actual depth here. No, you're not as big as you'd like. I don't know that you want Bismack Miombo playing any sort of minutes in in the playoffs, but you do have Cody Zeller when he's healthy is a, is a competent five man. Uh, you have the smaller lineups that we've already mentioned that, that you can go to there's, you know, maybe Cody Martin kind of shows at a point. So he has his moments. Uh, Devonte Graham, as I mentioned with the, with the off the dribble juice, uh, maybe you get some minutes from Jalen McDaniels. that are going to be quality for you. Uh, there's, there's names here that are, that are interesting for them. So, I don't. I'm not ready to pick them. If I if I was forced to choose, I'd probably say that they're not going to be one of the final eight teams. I probably just can't shake the Pacers, or maybe I'm trying to hedge against whatever the hell Washington is doing. They've just been annihilating the the rest of the league. That's a good segue because uh, Lior Brownstein at Brownstein Lior asked. He has two questions. What is the Wizards' ceiling this year? Play in or play off? And then he asked for two. Is there a chance for the Cavs and Kings to get out of the league's basement next year? Let's talk about the first one. We were just on the Wizards. Uh, they have been absolutely wild. They have won a crap ton. They're 12-2 and two over their last 14 games. Uh, they've gotten great performances from Bradley Beal, Russell Westbrook as well. Still not the most efficient scorer, but the pressure he's going to put on the rim matters, and defenses are reacting to that. Davis Breton shooting the hell out of the ball. Rui Hachimura has been really good for them. He's given them some good defensive minutes too and just shown a little bit more on offense. I think what's helped them more than anything is the defense during this stretch will you know let's look at this specifically since uh, they've racked up these victories i think it's since april 7th but just looking at their last 15 games they're ninth in offense and seventh in defense uh, look and looking at points allowed per possession for defense the two things driving that i don't know that i don't i don't know that they're unsustainable which would be a good thing opponents aren't hitting a high clip of their threes but they were hitting an overly high clip of their threes before that the fact that that's starting to normalize 
that's probably fine. That just means they're probably a better three-point defense than they were credited for at the beginning of the year when they were just absolutely atrocious. And their rim protection has gotten a lot better. And when you look at what Daniel Gafford has done, what Robin Lopez is able to do, even Alex Lynn has been good for them, and you're exchanging those minutes, it's, you know, Thomas Bryant is not a good rim protector. He's been injured, but that like, he's not your primary rim protector now. He barely played this year, just just so we're clear. And like Mo Wagner, was that the who was your highest volume win protector after Rolo before the before Daniel Gafford came in and having Alex Lynn? I think those are huge. I think they could be a playoff team. Uh, if they could, serve, I think anyone that's going to qualify for the play-in tournament could win it in the Eastern Conference. I don't think there's going to be a team that sneaks in. If it were the Bulls, actually, no, even if Levine, no, the Raptors, Bulls, Wizards, Pacers, Hornets, Heat. If you told me. Any combination of those two teams are in, unless it didn't include Miami. I'm going to I'm going to buy it because I would pencil Miami in. So maybe that's the the real surprise there. But I think their ceiling is playoffs. They're not beating. I'll look at this through the context of if they get in, they're gonna play the, the Nets or the Sixers. They're not putting I don't think they put up a fight against either of them. Ideally you probably more so want to go with Philly, just because at this point if the Nets are fully healthy, I think you'd just prefer to avoid them, even if you think the Sixers are the more well-balanced team, which which they are. So that's where I'm at with the Wizards. I don't know that I don't know that I have a pick for the plan. It's it's Miami and TBD for me. I'm still trying to to figure it out. But play the first round is certainly their ceiling this year. And I will say, I think their defense. I don't know that I would think it's top ten like it's been. I would say it's more a harbinger of real than artificial. The second question here was, is there a chance for the Cavs and Kings to get out of the league's basement next year? Both of them at the same time? Probably not. I would be shocked. Looking at the Cavs first, they're going to have another lottery pick, and then they add that to just an interesting, youthful base. And we talked about that in our futures rankings for the NBA's worst teams on this podcast. They have Colin Sexton. There's been a, there was a report from uh, Joe Varden that teammates are frustrated with him not passing the ball enough. I thought he's actually improved as a playmaker a little bit over the last year and a half, but he's a, an efficient scorer when you're looking at what he shoots on twos and threes and it was flirting with 25 points a game. I think that matters. Darius Garland's gotten a lot better hitting a good clip of his pull-up threes this year. looks like he has more control over the offense when he gets in the lane. The game feels like it slows down when he does that, which I, I translate to mean it's slowing down for him and he is able to manipulate defenses more. Isaac Okoro is the real thing on defense. Super active. Can he find his offensive role? Uh, that's very much t- TBD as well. They haven't really been super healthy, but looking up front, you do have Kevin Love, Larry Nash Jr., Jared Allen, for whatever that's worth. I don't know how many of those. Jared Allen will certainly be here. Fantastic rim protector. Shown a little bit more as a passer with with Cleveland. And isn't someone, do you want to call him matchup proof? No, because I think Rudy Gobert has even shown in certain games, for certain moments, against certain lineups, he's not matchup proof. He will never do that over the... An entire series. I want to make that clear, but it can be tough for the more traditionalist, a, a pure five. Let's call it. Jaron Allen though is more mobile than a lot of his peers. There is Kevin Love still in Cleveland next year. Like, what is this team's path out of the basement? Does it include keeping Kevin Love and Larry Nance Jr.? I don't know. Larry Nance Jr. for sure. Just what he brings it at both ends. You probably need to have one of the top three or four picks in the lottery though, where you're telling me that this team has you know, Cade Cunningham obviously is the big one, but did they get Jalen Suggs? Uh, so 
if you add one of those top four, top three guys, I think that's their quickest path out of the the basement. And then you probably have to keep the rest of the roster intact. I don't know that you're getting, maybe you can still move love. I would say you have to keep Larry Nance Jr. If you want to be good already, the Kings, it's tougher just by virtue of playing in the, the Western conference. They're approaching a weird, I feel like they've just been at a perpetual crossroads every single off season since the dawn of time, to be honest with you. The big indicator that I'm looking for is what happens with Rashawn Holmes. They have his early bird rights, and he's a free agent. They can pay him because he's making so little. It's it's essentially this. Uh, is he going to make around the league average salary, or are they going to have to have cap space to re-sign him? If they're going to pay him around the league average salary, that's about $10 million right now. I think he goes for substantially more than that, in which case they need to carve out cap space, in which case they need to shed money. Where is that money coming from? Is it getting rid of Buddy Heald? They just traded for DeLon Wright, so I, I wouldn't think it would be him. Is it a Harrison Barnes move? It's not going to be De'Aaron Fox. Is it a Marvin Bagley salary dump? Is that something they look at? And I I have to look at their numbers. I'm not sure Bagley alone gives them the room to just go out and sign Rashawn, Rashawn Holmes. I'm actually 90% sure it doesn't, though if any Kings fans are listening, they're, of course, free to cor- correct me. On that, I should have brought up their cap sheet for myself with all this research. I have, in case anyone cares, like between f- f- probably 43 and 50 tabs open right now. I should count them. That would be a fun live exercise. Anyway, if you don't bring back, bring back Rashawn Holmes, I think it speaks to more of a gradual process. I then would not predict them to come out of the, the basement. I don't know that I would predict that anyway. I think Tyrese Halliburton is really fucking good. Tyrese Halliburton might be an all-star. I want to make that... Everyone thinks that there's limited room for growth, that he's more of just this all-around complimentary player. I don't know. When I see him hit step-backs or kind of just butcher defenders when he's working off the dribble, but it, it, it disarms you because it's not super explosive. When I watch him break up passing lanes, when I watch him... I don't know if you want to call him a lockdown defender, but being able to hold his own in a lot of one-on-one situations, he might be an all-star. You're getting to, let's say, the De'Aaron Fox level, or maybe slightly just a tier below that. And if you're having two top 25, top 30 players on your team, that's a good place to start your rebuild. I don't know what you flesh it out from there, though. If you don't bring Rashawn Holmes back, who are you replacing him with, number one? And you can look at any of the number of flyers that you have on the roster right now. Hassan Whiteside probably comes back pretty cheap for them they're also they've also given looks to damian jones um so yeah they're i I don't know what they they also need wings regardless of what they do with the roster is robert woodard the second the answer hasn't played a ton this year it's not mo harkless you're not getting away with playing buddy heels at three terrence davis has been sneaky good on the court maybe it's not sneaky if you're watching kins games i think it's been pretty evident that he's good you're not getting minutes with him at the free delon wright helps a bunch though and that was the trade where i looked at like okay maybe they are this hurts their ability to keep Rashawn, but maybe they're more, more committed to the now than we think. I wouldn't be opposed to see if you can trim salary by moving Buddy Heald, because if you want to be good, you need Harrison Barnes. He's not a true wing, but he's just one of the options that you can use to defend the three, and then he's he's just a solid player all around. I, I also think there's a higher chance where Cleveland, I guess you could say they're not at a point to say we need to hit reset, but there could be more of a teardown in Sacramento over the summer than there would be in Cleveland, just because so many of their players are long-term keepers and just important to their future at this point. Even Dylan Windler, who who's, feels like he's been injured since the, the day he entered the league. Having him, Isaac Okoro, you you have Darius Garland, you have Colin Sexton, you're going to have this year's pick. I think Jetty Osmond, it's safe to say, is not going to be a part of the long-term plan. Might be 
one of the he might be the single least valuable NBA player this season if you're looking at players who actually get minutes they have Lamar Stevens and Dean, Dean Wade that they've been monitoring Jared Allen I already mentioned so they're kind of on they're rebuilding already and you could attach that label to Sacramento but they're also still they've been chasing the plane and they have that more veteran presence which is a weird thing to say when Cleveland has Kevin Love on their roster I think though Ooh, if I had to pick which one's more likely to be a playoff team next year, the easy answer is Cleveland because uh, Noah Odich says Lamar Stevens, uh, the GOAT. I, I think, look, that was smart for them. They've made a lot of understatedly smart moves, and I think Colin Sexton might be one of them. I don't understand the hate. If he was my only point guard, yeah, you could moan about his passing numbers, which I still just don't think are are terrible. They're they're set up well, and they would be the easy answer to this question that I'm asking myself. Which of these teams has a better chance of making the playoffs this year? I'm going to say the Kings. I love Rashawn Holmes and Tyrese Halliburton and De'Aaron Fox, for anyone who listens to this podcast, that much. And there's like the outline of a team ready to compete now with their top four guys in Barnes and then the three I just named. I'm not trying to dump all over Buddy Heald. I don't know that he's that mission critical. His shooting certainly is. I think you can try and move him. Is there a way to get a cheaper wing out of this? I don't know how teams are going to view the final three years of his, the next three years of his deal, or does this extension even kick in this year? I'm always off on a Buddy Heald's age, but that's, I think that's the move. If you can move Buddy Heald, and I might be, I don't want to give up on Marvin Bagley, but I might be ready to, and I was a Marvin Bagley optimist. I thought he was going to be a top 100 player as a sophomore, so you should just not, you know, not listen to anything I say, clearly, because I missed on, on that one. Is is the final three years and roughly like 60-something million of, of Buddy Heald's deal, can you get net positive value for that while also trimming salary? Or not net positive value. Can you trim salary or get some, somebody back who plays? I do not know. But that would be the, the move to, to consider. The Kings won't make the playoffs if Luke Walton is still the coach, Noah Odich says. Yeah, I'm, you're right. That's fair. He's not. There's. I'll be shocked if he still has a job with the Kings next season. his Some of his rotations just don't make sense. The Kings are playing faster, but it still feels like they're not playing fast enough. So, yeah, I, those are the two things. You need to keep Rashawn Holmes and get rid of Luke Walton, and then I'll be more inclined to pick the Kings to make the playoffs next season than the Cleveland Cavaliers. Let's get to this question from Dirk. D- I'm sorry, Dilka Siramana. I apologize if I butchered that, and the at is just like the name. Since we've seen Andrew Wiggins play defense and the Warriors are fourth in defensive rating over April, who was the worst defensive rating this season? It was the team that we were just talking about, the Sacramento Kings. It's by a fairly wide margin. It's by more than two points per 100 possessions, which this late in the season is its almost impressive how bad that is. I don't look at that team and think that they should be this bad on defense necessarily. De'Aaron Fox, not a great defender, but can he's fine like for point guards especially this he's not somebody you have to move around would be my point Tyrese Halliburton is good for a rookie Rashawn Holmes is not going to anchor be the anchor of a top tier defense but he's quality rim protector he can be pulled outside the paint without getting absolutely roasted Harrison Barnes rock solid positional defender against the three and four feels like this team should be but they have Mo Harkless now why they're 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 so, they've had stretches where it's like okay earlier in the season they were just getting they were switching for no reason and getting absolutely barbecued in those instances but they have the league's worst defense which what's interesting is uh you know D- dilka mentions the the warriors 
They're seventh in defensive rating on the season, which is great. And I want to be clear, I'm not a big fan of applying lineup ratings to what that would rank across the league. And I don't, I'm not using, I'm not a big fan of cross year comparisons. When we say Dallas had the best offensive league history last year, what was their offensive rating relative to the league average? That's what I'd be more interested in than compare that to other offenses relative to the league average in their seasons. So I'm kind of being a hypocrite by using this, but just a testament to how good offensive offenses have been this year or how poorly defenses have been however you want to spin this the Warriors seventh place defensive rating this year which is I believe it's 111.2 yeah it's 111.2 would have ranked 17th last year that's just food for thought as we get into next season maybe it's going to be a similar situation the next season because I imagine that the NBA is still going to be trying to play catch up with itself where they're not starting directly on time and if they are Oh my God, another shortened offseason. Let's hope that there aren't a ton of injuries as the result of that. Next question comes from Suns Burner. I promised a Suns question, and here it is. Does Devin Booker's defense, defensive stats reflect his on-court improvements? Again, I want to make it clear, I don't place too much stock in defensive stats, which is also a problem for me because I'm not Mr. X's and O's guy. I can't tell you where everyone's supposed to be. I read what I can. I watch what I can. I'm going to try and definitely go beyond steals and blocks. The numbers, though, do not support that Devin Booker has been a demonstrably better defender when you're looking at an individual level. He, you know, his, his steal rate and block rate are slightly up, so that's fine. Uh, when you look at RAPM, that's just the defensive one I'll go to to adjust for luck this season. He still ranks among the worst defenders in the league. When you look at ESPN's defensive RPM, he's a little bit higher from the bottom, which is better than he's been in recent seasons. Uh, he's above the way I put it. Is he, he ranks higher than Donovan Mitchell in defensive RPM, and I don't think Donovan Mitchell's a great defender either. Those two have just been sort of thrust together so often that I'm, I'm using that as, hey, there he is. What I have noticed from watching Devin Booker is that he feels more engaged away from the ball. And I guess you could say even on the ball. He's always been. There have been situations where he's defended really well on the ball for stretches. I feel like we're seeing those more now. He is defending the number one option a little bit more often this season than he was last season. He's not covering the, the toughest matchups overall, though. I want to make that clear. Oh, it's actually down from last season. I'm reading that wrong. This is from B-Ball Index. He is guarding the number one option 16.7% of the time. That's the third highest mark of his career per B-Ball Index. That's not huge. They're putting him on, you know, that he can either chase guys around or he's going to be on the stand, the standstill shooters. That's fine. You have the personnel when you have Mikael Bridges. You have Chris Paul. So you don't have to put Devin Booker on, on opposing point guards. You have Jay Crowder. They have the ability to do all this, and they don't need to try and hide him, put him on bigs because DeAndre Ayton's not a liability. Even having Sharich has been someone who can take on those guys. Torrey Craig, too. Fantastic for them this year. I think the biggest difference is coming away from the ball on the way he's closing out, contesting shots from shooters who are firing up off the catch. That's something the energy level feels like it's more there. And then his steal rate, I do think, reflects an uptick in activity. So that's good. But his defensive box plus minus, if you want to throw that, it's right around where it was last season. Um, so I don't think you can look at the numbers for it. I will say, though, that the, the Suns are a good defensive team this year, can defend a bunch of different ways. I don't know how much value you ascribe to Devin Booker as the reason that's happening. But he's a part of a team that is currently fifth in points allowed per possession. And so it can't be all bad. I'm not trying to even give him credit for it. And what I've noticed, again, it's come more so away from the ball. 
But if you're having him on the court right now and the defense is substantially worse with him on the floor, plus 7.2 points uh, worse per 100 possessions, when you dig a little bit deeper, you know, opponents aren't shooting a crap ton better when he's on the court. They're, you know, the, the Suns aren't getting worse at forcing turnovers um, or committing a ton more fouls when he's on the floor. This is not someone who's upending your defense, in my opinion. And a lot of those lineups, I'd probably say, there was the there was the starting lineup noise at the beginning of the year for the Suns. Some of that has normalized; is still continuing to normalize. Like those numbers can certainly skew it when you're looking at sample sizes so small and narrow. But he's also leading bench units on his own, and those have been absolutely destroying uh, opponents. They are over plus 10 points per 100 possessions. They're outscoring their opponents by when Devin Booker plays without without Chris Paul. And that's why this is probably something Adam and I will talk about maybe when we do our MVP awards or do something to reflect the season. And uh, by the way, those Booker lineups without Chris Paul, they're not good on defense. That was uh, meant to be. They have a 122.4 offensive rating against a 114 defensive rating. That was the point I was trying to make. But he can, the fact that he can be be in control of the offense without Chris Paul on the floor, I think it speaks that the Suns are more than Chris Paul and that we shouldn't so readily just insert Chris Paul into the MVP discussion. You want to put him top five, I totally get it. Phoenix's supporting cast has improved a great deal independent of adding him. I don't think they would have been this good without Chris Paul. I want to make that clear. But I do view this as an equitable star partnership. And the MVP award, I don't know if this is right or wrong, I am more inclined to reward guy. I don't want to say we're doing it alone, but there are clear demarcations between the the stars that you're selecting and then their second best player, Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray. That Jamal Murray is great. Jokic is world's better. LeBron James and Anthony Davis. You can argue both of them are top seven. That, that's fine. LeBron James is a lot better than Anthony Davis. This Devin Booker-Chris Paul partnership feels more like Donovan Mitchell-Rudy Gobert. That might even be a bad example because... No, I think it's... Donovan Mitchell has gets too much shit there. They feel like an equitable partnership. I mentioned Durant and Harden. Like that, that's what I'm looking at when I see Chris Paul and Devin Booker. They're so equal. The other thing, by the way, Devin Booker draws double teams on a higher percentage of his possessions. Chris Paul is drawing more double teams per game, but he has the ball in his hands more when you're looking at the raw possessions totals. On the percentage of their possessions, Devin Booker is averaging, um, is being double teamed more often by that metric. And the Suns, the la- I, this is a few games old. I'd have to go back and look at these numbers. They're averaging 1.19 points per possession when Devin Booker is double teamed. That's also a nod to his shot making. First and foremost, it's a nod to how good he would be how good of a playmaker he's become. And I don't want to use this equivalent, but 1.19 points per possession is about the second or third best offense in the NBA. And so the fact that he draws that much attention on the ball, and then what he does away from the ball, a good cutter that they've also used him more in those situations. There was this stagnancy at the beginning of the year where they weren't using him that way. And he's had to change his role when you're looking at the percentage of his shots that are coming off assists. He is playing off the ball more. That's an adjustment. And so I, I feel like I'm... I'm not trying to downplay what Chris Paul does. I just feel very awkward that nationally there seems to be this willingness to dismiss so much of what Devin Booker is doing. So, uh, yeah, that's I don't, that was not the question. The, the question was just about the, the stats for Devin Booker defensively. That's where I'm at on Devin Booker. Hopefully you appreciate those thoughts. Uh, let's get to see if I can do a couple quick ones that I do not have in the document because I got through these way quicker than I, I thought I would. But... 
uh, we have one that this is definitely simple enough. How many three-pointers has Stephen Curry made that comes from Nerdine Shihu? Uh, Stephen Curry this season has made a total of 291 three-pointers to lead the league. His career best is 354. It came in an 82-game season, in which he played only 69 games, by the by the way. Uh, oh, no, wait. His career best is 402. What am I doing? That's 2015-2016. I don't know if he'll... It could his full season pace of Stephen Curry ever catch that? That might be something to watch uh, uh, next year. If you're interested in what he's made for his career, he's made 2,800... 20, uh, I shouldn't round. 2,786 three-pointers for his career. I can confirm... That is a great many three pointers. I'll actually, as we get to the to the next question, I'll look up what that really ranks all, all time uh, for anyone who cares about that. But yeah, that was that was a pretty fun question. What else do we have here? Oh, John Cusack. We've already answered this, but just so I'll add, John, which All NBA team is Julius Randle on? I think it's second. It's second or third. I I think it's second though. Uh, that is subjects to change. Lasner Sport asks, which teams don't fear the Heat and are Westbrook and CP3 All-NBA? Fuck, I was asked about an All-NBA guard question. Let's tackle the first one. Which teams don't fear the Heat? If you're talking about a potential first-round matchup, I don't think Brooklyn or Philly is going to fear the Heat. Maybe Philly more so than Brooklyn because of what Jimmy Butler gives you in crunch time. If you're Miami, that Philly once had and does not anymore. I don't think Brooklyn is going to be scared of them. I don't think Milwaukee is going to be scared of them. Milwaukee's probably more scared of itself to see if its offense can hold up in, in the playoffs. And by the by, I, I think it will. Now, if you're a fellow play-in team, yes, you're scared of the Heat. Charlotte, Indiana, Washington, Chicago, Toronto. If you're one of those teams, whoever winds up in the other three spots, you're not going to say this, but subconsciously you're like, okay, the Heat are in, and then what? Who's get, Who else is getting in? Maybe it's Boston that's there, by the way. So that Boston... Would you be more afraid of Boston in the play-in or Miami? I, I feel like it might be Miami, and I'm not even. I'm assuming Victor Oladipo doesn't play in that scenario. So that's Boston's all over the place. That that is a that is a question. All NBA guards are Westbrook, CP3, All NBA. I'm not going to go through my All NBA guards because I need to finalize them. But I can tell you right now, CP3 will be on mine. What I'm trying to debate is: Do you put, you know, I. <laughs> We're going to go through this, aren't we? Screw it. Let's do it. First team, Steph and Luka Doncic or Dame. That's what I still have to figure out. Then the second team is going to be the other one of Luka Doncic or Dame. So Steph, Doncic, Dame, three locks. I'm going to have Booker or CP3 on my second team. I haven't decided which one yet. And I think the other one's going to be on my third team. And so after that, can Westbrook make it when Bradley Beal is on it? You're also going to have, I'm sure people are going to vote for Donovan Mitchell when it when it comes to this exercise. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Westbrook does not make it. I'm not trying to be one of the people that thinks he's terrible. I do think he's, he's outperformed my expectations this season, most of which has happened lately. Zach Levine's name is going to be thrown in there. Yeah, Trey Young's might be thrown in there, but I don't know that his case is that much stronger than a Westbrook's. I, what's going to be interesting is Kyrie, where if he gets to like 55 games or close to it, that's like enough to play where he's been, you know, everyone consider not everyone. I, I don't want to paint everyone with a broad brush, but he's become sort of this meme, which is really not fair because he said some of the delivery of what he said has been awkward, but he said some shit that actually matters. I don't know why I'm cussing so much on this podcast. Adam, I miss you. You keep my mouth in check, apparently. 
Uh, but he's averaging 27 points, 6.3 assists, shooting 56.2% on twos and 38.4% on threes. His name is one that I think is going to be sprinkled in there. So I'm going to say yes for CP3, no on Westbrook, because if I had to pick, I'm going to put... I'm not going to put James Harden there. I didn't mention his name. I think he ends up missing too much time because he's going to be out through the playoffs and the first eight games or whatever he played in Houston. That's like missing another eight or nine games because of what happened What happened there. He, that wasn't all NBA-level play from him. But ahead of Westbrook, I'd probably have Beal still. I don't know if I'd have Donovan Mitchell. There's a maybe there. And if I can get past the sample size, which I'm more willing to do when we're talking about all NBAs opposed to awards— I would have Kyrie in front of Westbrook. So the answer is a definitive no from me on that Westbrook one. Do we have one more question we can get to sifting through these? Had a ton. Thank you all for your questions as usual. You can continue to send these in. You can DM them to me like, yo, I didn't answer Noah's question who sent me one in DMs. Let's go to his. Without including franchise cornerstones slash superstars, what are the five most tradable rosters in the NBA? Uh, this is a good question. Noah, you're still in here. Are you trying to refer to which NBA teams have the most assets to offer or which teams are ready to make a blockbuster trade the most? I can try. I might answer this from both perspectives there. Teams that are blockbuster trade ready to acquire someone, I think, and that will. I'm going to try and factor in will because the Thunder absolutely belong in this discussion. I just don't think they're going to go after that star at least not for the next few years i do think golden state is blockbuster ready you still have james wiseman you have the wolves pick whether that's going to be outside the top three this season or unprotected in um unprotected in 2022 players only though so no cheating with with the thunder right but no are you talking about which teams have the most tradable players that they're giving away or that they're acquiring oh that they're giving away Whew. And that's realistic on the trade block. I mean, Wiseman is right there. I don't know why you wouldn't take a flyer on him if you're Golden State. Um, this is a. I'm. I'm going to save this question and maybe dig deeper into it. I forgot you had sent it. Um, I think I need to consider the the context of it more. Of teams that just have these players that. They're just so trade-ready to move. If, if the Warriors and Wiseman are sort of along the lines of what you're thinking, teams that have a player that they can use to to anchor a blockbuster, there are a couple teams in that situation. I think you, know, you start to get with New Orleans, and has Kyra Lewis Jr. played well enough to be the, the blockbuster anchor? Or if you really want to swing for the fences, do you include Brandon Ingram in that? I'm very much in the camp of it's Brandon Ingram and Zion are your only two locks right now to stick with this core. You'd probably be more likely to trade Lonzo Ball on a sign and trade or just let him walk for nothing. Him. Um, I would say I, this is, you said players only, but it's, I think this fits for both these teams. So I'm going to name it. That Minnesota pick this year, either the Warriors get it and they need to get Steph help yesterday or minnesota has it and you're still sort of on this urgent timeline because you have towns you have russell you've paid malik beasley anthony edwards has sort of popped do you try and make that next all-in play especially when your 2022 pick is going to be unprotected so that would be a team miami that's someone who springs to mind for me they have tyler hero who sheen is not completely worn off 
And so can you use him as the anchor in, you know, I don't know who's going to become available this summer, but is him plus stuff going to get you in a Bradley Beal discussion if he becomes available? Another sneaky team, I don't know if they would have the guts to do this, but Memphis. When you look at having those mid-end contracts that are very digestible for good players, if you wanted to use as salary ballast, I mean, having Kyle Anderson, having DeAnthony Melton, where it's not strictly for their salaries that you're moving them. Even Jonas Valanciunas, who's been, as Adam mentioned on the previous podcast, probably their best player end-to-end this year. Plus, you have Desmond Bain. You have Brandon Clark. Xavier Tillman is, is super intriguing now. Plus, your future first. That can get you into some pretty interesting discussions, I would think. Um, going through the rest of these teams... That might do it for me. Dallas doesn't really have the juice to do it. Michael Porter Jr. would be a no-brainer here, but I think Denver, you're keeping him now. What is the what is the player who come, becomes available this summer that would make you trade or Michael Porter Jr.? If it's Dame, are you trading Michael Porter Jr. for Dame? You would in a vacuum, but you have Jamal Murray's going to come back in a year. And how does that Murray-Lillard partnership end up working out? Giannis isn't going to become available. That would be someone to, to consider. Uh Boston doesn't really fall in this category anymore. Does Atlanta, are you that intrigued by a healthy DeAndre Hunter if you're opposing teams? I would push back against them being included. They do have Onyeka Okongwu, so maybe having him and DeAndre Hunter plus future picks, but they're already sort of good that I don't know teams are going to value their future first. And that when you're giving up a star, those are the types of things you're going to be looking for. So that would be... That was a good question, Noah. I might give it more deeper thought and re-answer this once Adam's back on. If I had to pick the team that's most likely to do it and most capable of doing it, I do think it's the Warriors, if only because they have the biggest motivation and they can more easily convince themselves into giving up James Wiseman. Guys, this was great. Thank you so much for those who hopped in and out. Thank you for Noah, who stuck with us for the entire room. As always, if this is your first time listening to Hardwood Knox, or even if you're a reoccurring listener, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We can be found everywhere you get them. So search us, download every episode, subscribe, follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox, follow us on YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, second team All-NBA inevitability, Julius Randle. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.